Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today's episode of Climate Changers is sponsored by the Carbon Almanac, the definitive book of facts for all things carbon and climate. It's more than just a book, it's a movement. Available anywhere where books are sold. Today, my guest is Andrew Reagan, Executive Director of Clean Energy for America. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on. First of all, congratulations on the passage of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Up until recently, it seemed clear that any version of Build Back Better was unlikely to pass in the current session of Congress. So this is a huge win for the country and for future generations. How does the Inflation Reduction Act differ from the last versions of Build Back Better? When I think about this, it's insane to me that it's been less than two months. But I remember in the middle of July when when the news came out that Manchin was going away from the table, you know, it sort of seemed like, hey, we're, we're not getting anything. But then less than two weeks later, we have this miracle breakthrough and we get something that I think surprised almost everyone who follows this outside of Senator Schumer, Senator Manchin and the, the small number of staff who are in the loop. And I think the most surprising thing about this is how much of the original funding from the Build Back Better Act uh, for clean energy made it through to this bill. So if you'll recall, there was something around $555 billion of combined climate and clean energy investments in the Build Back Better Act. And we're looking here at uh, around $369 billion of that that made its way through. So while the clean energy payment program that originally was in the Build Back Better Act did not make it through, uh, the bulk of these investments, these tax credits, these incentives made it through in this bill. And could you talk about your mission at Clean Energy for America and your involvement in the legislation? Clean Energy for America is a network of folks who work in clean energy across the country that are dedicated to supporting policies that advance this industry and keep us on the path to the energy transition and the rapid decarbonization that we need to meet our climate goals. Uh, And what we did around the Build Back Better Act and then the Inflation Reduction Act was to help elevate the voice of the clean energy industry, tell the positive aspects that clean energy is creating for people around the country, and to give that to policymakers to put that out in the press in a way that helped build support for this bill. We were also able to set up some meetings, including a March meeting with Senator Manchin, um, where we helped bring some companies to town to talk with him about the the manufacturing benefits that this would have and, and some of the other ways that this bill would really jumpstart the clean energy manufacturing industry in this country. So we were active, I would say, on the inside and the outside game. But we were fortunate to work with a lot of great partners in this space. And I certainly want to want to give credit to all of the people who came together to make this happen. This was truly a team effort where the clean energy and the environmental community came together to make sure that this happened and to show that failure was not an option. So with that as context, for a long time, reducing carbon emissions was seen to conflict with economic growth, but that seems to have changed. How does fighting climate change align with the revitalization of American manufacturing and industry? When you look at Waxman Markey, the last time in 2009-2010 where we were looking at federal climate policy to now, it's really striking how the underlying architecture of the the legal approach here has changed. As you and your listeners might recall, Waxman-Markey, the climate bill in the Obama administration 
was based on a tax on carbon and a cap and trade system. That was thrown out the window here, you know, for better or worse, that was not the approach that was taken. Part of the reason for the success of this law and for the success more broadly of the Biden administration's clean energy and climate agenda was that it was not framed as sacrifices that need to be made by the American people. It was based on opportunities that can come. And and I think manufacturing, as you mentioned, is such a great example there. In addition to extension of existing tax credits in this bill, you know, like the solar ITC, like 48C and other tax credits that we've seen in the past, there's a new tax credit for clean energy manufacturing. And particularly, there are $30 billion worth of tax credits that add a 10% tax credit to projects that use components made here in America. So beyond that, there are multiple incentives in this law that make clean energy manufacturing in America more attractive to investors. And unlike some of the other provisions, that new clean energy manufacturing tax credit is direct pay. And that means that it'll be easier for manufacturers to build their operations, to grow their operations, because they don't need to go through as complex financing to get it off the ground. And and one of the barriers in many ways to manufacturing has been the fact that Wall Street and private equity is willing to invest in some clean energy product projects that have a quicker turnaround. But manufacturing is one of these that has not seen that before. So it's what it's going to do is increase manufacturing of wind turbines, of solar panels, of batteries, of, of all the components that we need for our clean energy economy to be made here in America. And so I'm just so excited to see this. You're already seeing companies like Q-Cells in Georgia, who has a solar manufacturing factory there. They're growing that factory. Uh, Core Power in Arizona is breaking ground on a million square foot, 12 gigawatt hour battery manufacturing facility later this year that's going to employ over 3,000 people there. So you're already seeing these examples post-passage of companies who are building their manufacturing operations here in the U.S. And that's, I think, only going to increase Uh, over the coming months and years. And how does the IRA bring down the cost of clean energy for consumers? There's a couple ways that it does that. One of the basic ones is just that through the extension and expansion of these tax credits, it makes it easier for folks who want to go more energy efficient, who want to convert to clean energy to do so. So for the solar tax credit, It increases it up to 30%. And that's effective immediately after the signing. So right now, the solar tax credit is 30%. That's the federal rebate you get off of a system if you get it installed right now. And that extends, I should say, to things like heat pumps, things like increased energy efficiency improvements in your home. So sort of for, for that class of folks who are looking to get their own clean energy build out on their property, that's, that's built in. But I think the more kind of interesting piece of this is the effect that it's going to have for the power market and for everyone who pays a utility bill, because it's going to juice the growth of clean energy as a share of power grids across the country. And what that does is, in the end, lowers costs for consumers because you're not exposed to the volatility of fossil fuels like oil and gas that, as the war in Ukraine has shown us, can, can be really volatile and can really impact 
you know, world events can impact consumers here at home with higher energy prices. We're also expecting a winter of really rising natural gas prices. As, as your listeners may have seen, natural gas prices have risen recently, and that makes up a large part of home heating in the U.S. So I think just the, the impact of the grid increasing its share of wind, solar, and other renewable energies is going to lower costs for people because that is going to mean cheaper power production. And so you talked a little bit about the grid. How about the transportation network? What changes should we expect there? One of the really interesting parts of this bill are the electric vehicle incentives. And so while there certainly was not everything that our our friends who work in EVs might have wanted to see, there are some really key pieces here. So there's the expansion of the federal tax credit for EVs that are made or assembled here in the United States. And so while that doesn't necessarily have a huge impact off the bat, I think what you're going to see and already have seen with Hyundai and some other automakers is more manufacturing, more assembly here in the United States as opposed to overseas and then being imported. And then that makes more people eligible for those rebates on electric vehicles. So just off the bat, you're going to see Uh, incentives for consumers to make it cheaper to get an EV, but also to go back to what we're talking about on the manufacturing piece, there's new money for research and development of batteries and other key components of EVs that are going to help us solve some of these supply chain issues with lithium ion batteries and others that have, as again, as your listeners, I'm sure have seen, had these supply chain issues that have created in some ways a bottleneck because there's more demand for EVs than currently there is capacity to produce them. So I think it's some of these investments that are going to be really interesting to watch because that's what in the next 10 years, if we truly want to see the build out that we need, uh, we need to invest in those new technologies now so that they can be scaled up and implemented by automakers to get those savings onto consumers. So I think especially the battery manufacturing incentives, as I mentioned, in in just manufacturing overall, as well as the research and development pieces, are going to just make EVs easier to implement. Um, And coupled with the bipartisan infrastructure law, which was passed last year, uh, that had a five-year build-out with billions of dollars for electric charging stations, you're going to see both easier and cheaper to get EVs for consumers in parallel with a build out of charging stations so that these sort of concerns of range anxiety and other barriers to adoption continue to fall away. And it just makes it easier overall to transition away from internal combustion engine automobiles. You talked about this a little bit, but a lot of these changes in this transformation involve battery technology. And we know there's some challenges ahead with battery technologies and the amount of batteries required. How are we going to overcome those challenges? Innovation. One company that we've worked with in Oregon, ESS Tech, has developed and is implementing an iron cell battery technology that, while not for use necessarily in EVs, is being used in battery storage for, for the grid and other applications like DERs. What I think we really need to see is the continued scaling up of technologies like that and research into those new technologies so that instead of relying on rare earth minerals to create our battery technology, we're working with you know more abundant, easier to source materials. And so I think it, that's going to be a really interesting space to watch as you see 
what's being done on battery technology. And then there's some really interesting moves being done by companies like NPower, who has a factory in Indiana, my, my home state, and not necessarily sort of the ground zero for pro clean energy, but they have a, a factory there that's doing lithium ion technology that increases capacity and longevity. So I think if you look at you know the last 10 years, the advances we've seen in battery tech, as we look to the next 10 years, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we're going to see that. And in part, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, you're going to have more money for research and development uh, and more money for manufacturing that's going to help supercharge this process that has already been underway in the private market. So any massive legislation like this includes carrots and sticks. And what are the carrots and sticks in the IRA that incentivize American companies to decarbonize? One of the interesting things about this bill is, as I referenced earlier, when we think about kind of the, the change from Waxman Markey, the previous attempt at climate legislation in, in 09 and 10, is that this legislation goes very heavy on carrots and, you know, honestly has fewer sticks than, than previous components. I think in some ways that is, in my mind, a positive step because for so long, the political opposition to clean energy and climate while it's funded by the fossil fuel industry, there, there's a kernel of truth to it that consumers are being asked to sacrifice. Companies are being asked to sacrifice. And it's not to say that, that we don't need to take steps around conservation, to take steps to be energy efficient, all these other pieces. But I think the, the real kind of change here is that under this law, it is a positive financial proposition to increase your share of clean energy. So all of these factors that we've mentioned before, the the growth of clean energy on the grid, the growth of these technologies, that is already going to have a downstream effect to some of the bigger corporate leaders on climate and sustainability who, while they're not you know perfect, uh, a lot of these companies, uh, you know, look at the majors like, you know, Walmart, Microsoft, other other companies that use a lot of power have their own portfolio goals of the share of clean energy that they use and their own net zero goals. And so I think what this is going to do is enable some of these existing corporate initiatives, while they're not perfect, to more readily meet their own internal goals when it comes to their, their share of electricity and emissions reduction that is that is clean energy. And so I think your listeners and the general public should continue to, to pressure companies to take those steps to increase their goals. I think the exciting piece of this is it's going to make it easier to meet those goals because of this build out of clean energy. You know, as we think about, though, on the stick side, one of the pieces of this bill that I think is really exciting is a price on methane that has been implemented in this bill. At methane, as, as you know, or I'm sure Ryan has, as a greenhouse gas, has a much larger impact than carbon dioxide on global warming. And so by putting a price on this, I think you're going to see a increased push to reduce the methane leaks, to reduce the methane emissions that oil and gas companies have not always had the incentive to do. So I think that's a really interesting component of this bill and one that is going to really crack down on one of the most outsized pollutants that we deal with right now. So while it's largely carrots and light on sticks, I think the price on methane is really interesting to watch as we think about ways to 
develop regulations and others at the federal level that are going to force companies to do the right thing, in addition to supporting some of the companies who do want to do the right thing and need that extra economic boost to make it make sense for their bottom line. So that makes a lot of sense, but should it have included more sticks to punish the fossil fuel industry? Uh, I think in short, yes. I, I would have, I per, you know, personally would have liked to see the folks like the oil and gas companies who are responsible for so much of these emissions and so much of these harms be held to account. But, un, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world where we don't always get what we want and, and the perfect is not always achievable. So what I sort of say as I think about this is in an ideal world, yes, we would have had that in the, the world of the possible. Our alternatives were nothing. Or this. And I think that when you look at the emissions reduction modeling, that this is going to put us on track for our 40% goal of emissions reductions by 2030 compared to the 2005 baseline. It is unequivocally a, a positive step for the country and, and for the world. So I completely 100% wish that we had seen more mechanisms to hold these polluters accountable. I think we're still in a really good place compared to the baseline that we were in on July 15th of this year. Are there specific incentives for projects that capture carbon from the atmosphere? Yeah, there are. And I think this is one of the interesting pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act, where beyond some of the traditional technologies that we think about when we think about clean energy, like wind and solar, this law is really thoughtful when it comes to trying to drive some of these newer technologies like carbon capture. And so one of the policy levers that the Inflation Reduction Act implements is it increases the government subsidy for capturing CO2 from polluting sources from $50 a metric ton to $85 per metric ton. And what a lot of the analysis of this bill has said is that that's going to make viable more projects that under the previous regulatory regime were not going to be worth the investment. So there are a lot of folks who I think in this carbon capture world are really excited to this change to 45Q, which is the, you know, the former tax incentive for carbon capture, that that's going to make pipelines, ethanol processing facilities, uh, and some of these other uh, technologies, which, you know, emit largely just CO2 from where they are emitting to make it easier for these carbon capture projects to get off the ground. And I think that this is a space that's really going to be interesting to see because I think fairly critics of carbon capture have said that it is too small of a technology right now to really have a limit on emissions. But I firmly believe that we need to invest in as many technologies as possible and scale them up quickly so that, uh, you know, five, 10 years from now, they can hopefully be at the scale where they're a real driver of emissions reduction. So I'm very excited to see that. And I think it'll be interesting to look at carbon capture projects, you know, at natural gas processing facilities, cement plants, and some of these others that weren't previously financially viable, but but that this $85 per ton uh, increase on the, the subsidy could make uh, financially viable. Could you talk about how the IRA strengthens the Clean Air Act to empower the EPA to regulate emissions? One of the really exciting pieces of this law that legal scholars are still going back and forth on is that it affirmatively designates CO2 as a pollutant that the EPA can regulate. And so while it's not a direct overturning of the the Supreme Court's recent ruling that in some ways curtailed the EPA's ability to regulate 
greenhouse gases. What this does is in response to that ruling affirmatively states that carbon dioxide is a pollutant that the EPA can regulate. So I think one of the sort of interesting next steps that we look at here once this law has passed is there are a whole suite of administrative rulings, administrative actions that need to be done to implement it. And so what this what this does is give the EPA the flexibility to better regulate carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas pollutant. And so while it does not directly overturn that Supreme Court ruling, it responds to one of the core pillars of that. And so I think what you're going to see is a strengthened EPA that is better able to set emissions regulations that will have the impact of incentivizing clean energy over polluting fossil fuel energy. And does the Inflation Reduction Act also make it easier for state and local governments to pursue more aggressive climate policy? It does. I think one of the really interesting pieces of this bill is the extension of direct pay for projects to entities that do not pay a federal income tax. So school districts, cities, municipalities, nonprofits, co-ops, a lot of these entities that are looking at developing renewable energy projects on you know, facilities they own or in the communities where they, they live are going to be able to take advantage of the federal tax credits, even though they don't have a federal tax liability. So while I know a lot of my friends in the clean energy industry were disappointed that direct pay was not uh, included for other projects, I think that the inclusion of direct pay that's accessible by cities, you know, municipalities, in some cases, tribes, nonprofits, is going to allow a lot of these really cool projects where folks are putting solar on schools and making these energy efficiency upgrades. And, you know, and these are things that I think in the past would have required complex funding arrangements and working with investment partners. This sort of cuts out that middleman and allows states, uh, cities, nonprofits and others to really take advantage of those tax credits and boost a lot of projects. Getting back to the economics, how will the IRA enhance economic competitiveness and contribute to the creation of high quality jobs as we transition to a clean economy? One of the really key pieces of this goes back to what we talked about earlier on the manufacturing side, and that for so long that the build out of clean energy in the United States has been dependent on foreign supply chains that were often subject to disruptions, whether it's geopolitical events like war, trade disputes, concerns about the labor in those projects, that is going to be reduced by the growth of clean energy manufacturing. And by building this supply chain here at home, not only are you going to you know, get a more reliable supply of these products and take out some of the uncertainty when it comes to developing new clean energy projects, you're going to create good paying jobs. An analysis by the Blue Green Alliance, um, a coalition of labor groups and environmental groups, found that the manufacturing jobs over the next 10 years are set to grow by over 900,000 jobs. And that is because the way that, as we mentioned, the manufacturing tax credit is structured, the, you know, the wind, solar, and EV tax credits are structured, are going to incentivize developers of projects to use American-made materials, which itself will then create demand for uh, clean energy manufacturing in the U.S. And, and allow a financing structure in which that can happen. And what about the jobs that will be lost in communities reliant on industries like coal? 
What you need to think about when you when you address that question is that this law does not put people out of business. This law does not take away jobs that, you know, in many of these communities have already been leaving. But I think what it does is really try to address the legacy of these communities by incentivizing development in places like former coal communities by increasing job training opportunities. And so, uh, you know, when you look at this law, I think it's it's going to be incumbent on all of the people who play a role here from, you know, states to, to companies to the, the localities where this, these communities have been to really make sure that they don't fall behind. But because of the way that the law is structured, there are incentives to build projects and to hire to hire individuals, specifically in former coal communities and other fossil fuel industries where these jobs have have been going away. And I think when you think of kind of a real life example, there's some really interesting places in West Virginia where as they build out wind energy, uh, you're seeing people who got their start in mining coal now getting trained to do operations and maintenance on wind turbines. So I think there's sort of a lot of cases where you're going to see this transition happen. I don't want to gloss over and say that there are not going to be real challenges here. And so I would say that as people who care about climate and clean energy, we can't leave those communities behind. And we need to make sure that the clean energy transition elevates, lifts up and provides new opportunities for communities who have made their living on fossil fuels, but in many ways also borne the brunt of the environmental cost of living close to these polluting facilities. And related to that, how does this legislation address racial and economic inequality and help rebuild disadvantaged communities? This legislation does a couple of core things that hopefully all will have the the, the collective impact to address some of these long-term injustices that have happened to communities of color and traditionally, you know, fence, fence line and frontline communities who have who've borne the brunt of fossil fuel pollution. So at the core, the reduction in pollution in this bill will make sure that there is, you know, clean air and water and that, you know, communities are free from some of these toxic pollutants. And it does that through a couple of ways. So, you know, what we've talked about overall and just the general increase of clean energy production, but more specifically, it creates a climate and environmental justice block grant program, which supports community-led projects in disadvantaged communities and addresses the disproportionate environmental and public health harms related to pollution and climate change. It also funds fence line monitoring near industrial facilities. You know, that includes air quality sensors in disadvantaged communities, new and upgraded multi-pollutant monitoring sites, and the monitoring and mitigation of methane and wood heater emissions. It also makes clean energy more affordable and accessible. So in a lot of ways, it's going to spur solar project development because it includes a 20% bonus credit for solar projects on federally subsidized affordable housing projects and a 10% bonus credit for solar projects in low-income communities. And it also, as we mentioned, gives direct pay to co-ops, nonprofits, and others. So when you look at companies like Solstice and others that have done really great work in building out community solar in communities that have, have, have for so long borne the brunt of pollution, it allows those projects to be more easily financed. And then, you know, finally, just as we think about it, it also includes some investments in resilience. So, you know, when you look at drought on tribal and native Hawaiian communities, it includes, you know, overall $5 billion for drought mitigation. And it enables the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development 
to improve the climate resilience of affordable housing. Uh, so sort of all of these taken together, I think you're going to see a reduction in pollution overall and then specific funding that is directed at communities who have been overlooked. So I think it's it's you know really important and, and it's hard to overstate, but this is in some ways the largest investment in environmental justice ever made in the United States history. What will this bill mean for the future of the clean energy workforce in the U.S.? I, I think that this bill is so exciting because it is going to turbocharge the growth of the clean energy industry and build that workforce. And I think, as we talked about before, that's going to create long-term political sustainability because it's going to employ people in clean energy, in blue states, in red states, and in purple states. And it means that more people, uh, their friends, their family, their neighbors themselves work in clean energy or know someone in clean energy. And when you look at it right now, there's 3 million plus clean energy workers in the United States. The Blue-Green Alliance analysis of this bill projects that over 900,000 jobs in manufacturing, clean energy alone are going to be grown over the next decade. And so I think when you look at what needs to happen, there's a really big challenge to grow this workforce, but also an incredible opportunity to employ more Americans in stable, good-paying jobs that not only provide a good living for folks, but build the long-term social political understanding of clean energy as a positive force that is going to enable this transition to be successful. Andrew, what makes you most optimistic about the future? What I'm most optimistic about is that I think that this law puts us on a pathway to reduce the polarization around climate and clean energy. And if we're ever going to have a sustainable, just transition that is you know, safe from political interference. I think this law puts us on that track because it's going to develop clean energy in communities across the country, including red states. It's going to give benefits to consumers, and then it's going to grow economic growth in a lot of states that traditionally have been fossil fuel states, like my home state of Texas, uh, Oklahoma, and others. And so to me, What's so exciting about this law is that I think it sets us on the path to depoliticize clean energy as communities, especially in red states across the country, continue to see the benefit of clean energy, continue to see new projects, new economic growth. We're going to be well on the pathway to building a consensus around clean energy in the general public that will make it harder for uh, Republicans who might want to attack this law to truly go after it. Andrew, thank you for your work with Clean Energy for America to help transform the fight against climate change and help bring about a huge win for us in future generations. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Thanks so much, Ryan. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.